welcome to the Third Turn Podcast, an ongoing resource for maestro-level leaders. In this episode, number 48, Kristen Evenson and Mark L. Vincent have a conversation with Dr. Roger Hall on the subject of the do-it-yourself brain. Kristen Evenson, it is always so fun to have these conversations with you and deeply gifted and experienced people. I have to ask you right away, as an executive advisor and as somebody trained in the neuroscience of change and as a facilitator for our newest maestro level leader cohort, our subject, do it yourself brain. Now that has to be of interest to you, isn't it? Well, it definitely is, Mark. And I had the opportunity to meet Roger a couple of weeks ago in Boise for one of our cohort gatherings where he presented. And he said some really provocative things, especially about self-esteem versus self-efficacy that have stuck in my brain that I need some follow-up on. So this comes perfectly timed and um, really look forward to having a conversation today. Well, good. So let's just bring in our guest, Dr. Roger Hall. And after all his training, uh, all the books he's written and the people he's served, it's interesting on his website, he he says he has just one trick. He trains leaders to monitor and manage their thinking. So welcome, Roger. Thank you for having me. I'm grateful to be here today. Roger, let's just dig in right there. What is at the heart of this trick of yours? What does training leaders to monitor and manage their thinking involve and look like? One of my friends and colleagues tells me that's not really one trick. That's two tricks. So uh, <laughs> He must have been the English major. <laughs> he's an engineer, so he can't, he's got to be precise. So all of us have a, a stream of consciousness running through our head and Very rarely do people stick a bucket in to sample what's in their stream of consciousness. One of my jobs is to train people to monitor their thinking. And in my business, it's called metacognition. It's it's the ability to think about your thinking. But but really, it's sticking the bucket into the, the stream of consciousness and finding out what's there. And usually when people pull up that bucket and look in it a little bit, they realize it boy, there's a lot of trash in my stream of consciousness. And so my job is to kind of empty that bucket and take out the head trash and help them to do that themselves. So great leaders in any endeavor are first and foremost disciplined thinkers. They're able to to look at their thinking and then they're able to modify it. They, They monitor their thoughts. Then when they have an unproductive thought, they stop it and they say, Boy, that, that's an unproductive way to think. And then they replace it. And, and part of my job and the job that I'm sure that, that you folks do is helping your leaders replace those unproductive thoughts with more accurate and more productive thoughts, which is different than, you know, we're going to think about happy things all day long because if it's, it's, it's first got to be true and then it's got to be productive. And so part of part of our our job is to help them stop, then replace those unproductive thoughts. As we came to this conversation, I was curious about this because, you know, I, I there have been books written and research published about you know our stinking thinking mm-hmm. ways that are kind of yeah unproductive, oftentimes lacking in self esteem. We tell ourselves you know negative things, and some of us would expect that accomplished leaders, you know, have much more productive thinking that they are, you know, marked by a self-esteem and courage and uh, bravery. And so is there a kind of a unique kind of thinking that needs to be managed in a leader? 
the leaders I work with, they kind of fall into their success. They they have a they have an area of content expertise and they're really good at whatever their thing is. They they make a widget or or whatever it is. And they they they've been blessed with some extra gifts, but as as they rise up with with power, you know, and freedom of the freedom that comes with that, they're really good at their content, but they may not have sorted out all of all of their stinking thinking, as you say. So just because they have more power, just because they have more influence, doesn't mean they're they're always incredibly self-disciplined. And so, kind of our job, I think, is to help people who are content experts who who have risen to a level of leadership or power, help them then learn those skills so that they're better able to lead the people around them. I mean, they may be good at making a widget, but they're not, maybe not great at leading people and perhaps not even leading themselves. Let's take this a little bit deeper, Roger. I'm wondering if you could unpack how monitoring and managing one's thinking might look across those three turns of executive leadership and Perhaps uh, it would help you maybe just to use your own story of how you did your own brain <laughs> across those three turns. That's a, that's a great question. So the, the, the first turn is, is, you know, as, as you've said, is leading yourself. Let's use a different framework, which is Daniel Goleman's model of emotional intelligence. Um, there are five things, and I want to talk about four of them here. One is um, self-awareness. And then self-control. And if we if we rename those the way I've renamed them, it's it's self self-awareness is monitoring yourself. Self-control is managing yourself. And so every leader has to have those basic skills to monitor and manage, to have self-awareness and self-control. Uh, self-control is probably the single most important skill anyone needs. Roy Baumeister and John Tierney wrote a book called Willpower, Rediscovering the Greatest Human Strength. And and in it, they argue that self-control is the most important distinguisher of of great performance. You know, it goes goes back to the uh, Walter Michel's marshmallow experiment. If you, I don't know if you've are familiar with that, but 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 it's the delay of gratification. So that's the first thing. And so for me, you know, in my development, I, I learned the delay of gratification, you know, as a young adult, probably even before that. I never had as much good delay of gratification as my sister, though. She was always better than me. But I learned it as a young adult, which was putting off earning money in order to to go to graduate school, where I made virtually no money and worked really, really hard. And so while my peers were out earning incomes and and buying houses i was i was still you know i was still eating really bad food um and barely could afford that so that that was the first thing was was becoming self-aware and in my training we spent a lot of time on improving our self-awareness um looking at ourselves really hard to make sure that we weren't coming into our work as psychologists with things in our way so that's how i started it the second turn is leading people. And so if we look back at Goldman's second two things, so there's self-awareness and self-control. The third is empathy. And empathy is being able to monitor others. And then it's what he calls resonance, which is being able to join people in an emotional state and then draw them to a different emotional state, a kind of influence or persuasion. Well, that's managing other people's thoughts and emotions. So great leaders monitor and manage themselves 
And then as they have people around them, they have empathy where they're able to monitor, accurately assess what other people are thinking and feeling, and then managing those emotions, which is is resonance or influence. And so they're able to draw the people who follow them from from one emotional state to another. And, and so, f- so for me, it, it you know, in my work with my leaders, every day I spend you know a good bit of the day with the leaders I work with, trying to accurately understand their emotions and their thoughts. And and that's what you do. You 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 spend your day with your leaders listening to what they say, trying to be empathic or or empathetic, trying to understand their point of view and then draw them from one unproductive set of emotions or set of thoughts and put them to another thing. So, it's really monitor manage yourself, monitor and manage others. Your third turn is you know, how do you leave a legacy um, or a succession or, or how do you create future value? And, and so for a guy like me, um, I don't have a large organization. It's just me. So how do I have influence for a longer period of time? And I'll use, I'll use the example of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis died uh, 58 years ago. He, he died a month before I was born. And um, C.S. Lewis continues to have influence today, even though he's been dead for nearly 60 years, because he wrote stuff down. <laughs> his legacy is, is in his writings. And like I don't think he could have ever imagined that there'd be a series of movies and that there would be a whole world of people who were affected by his thinking because he wrote it down. So you know, as as I think about my legacy, I mean, some people are they're great at other things. They they build bridges, or they build buildings, or they build corporations. Those aren't the things I'm really good at. But I am good at communicating ideas. So I think, okay, my responsibility is how do I memorialize the the gifts I've been given so that I can have influence beyond my reach and beyond my life. And and so this is the stuff that that drives me is. How do I document it? So I, I want to write books. I want to um, I want to do like this this podcast with you, and, and like somewhere, somehow, someone I'll have never met. So that's beyond my reach. And maybe after I'm dead, beyond my life, someone can be influenced by this conversation we're having. And so we can influence people well beyond our time on this earth. Roger, I, I'm sorry. I started laughing when you were talking about C.S. Lewis writing stuff down simply because in the last month I've been with some executive teams. I mean, these are, you know, VPs, directors, C-suite folks. They don't write anything down. And, you know, they, they take no notes and then they walk away and they have their subjective memories about what was decided. And then they have to actually have another expensive confab to figure out what they had figured out because they only remember what they remembered, not what was actually decided. And it gets crazy. And I thought all of a sudden, wait a minute, maybe that's what you mean when you talk about the difference between self-esteem and self-efficacy. You know, I'm so all that, I don't have to write anything down versus I'm being effective. But would you say more about that that wordplay? Yeah, sure. In his book, Learned Optimism, Martin Seligman, who's the father of positive psychology, uh, pretty much killed the sacred cow of self-esteem. What he argues in his work is that self-esteem, you know, which we've been teaching kids for two generations, which is you look in the mirror and you say, you know, you're wonderful, you you're super, you're you're special in every single way. What the academic research has found is that 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 sort of 
vague sort of general, you're super deluxe talk, self-esteem, feeling good about yourself is, is found most commonly in career criminals. Career criminals think they're great. So what we're doing really, I, I would argue, and I don't think Seligman argues this, but what we're doing is we're teaching young people to think like narcissistic career criminals. This is not a good solution. Now, there, there's a related topic called self-efficacy. And this comes out of a work of a guy named Albert Bandura. Uh, and he did this work back in the 60s and the 70s. And what he said is that different than self-esteem, self-efficacy is as you approach a problem, you look at evidence from your past experience and you tell yourself, oh, I can apply this past experience to my current challenge. And it's a, it's it's very much an evidence base rather than a um, you know click your heels together and say there's no place like home wishful thinking, and so I'll give you an example. Since I was in college, I have lived in I think 18 different places, and you know what? I'm really good at moving, you know. And so when when I anticipated a cross country move. I had self-efficacy, which is like, oh, I, I did this once before when I moved to Utah. Oh, okay, I can do this again. It'll be a little bit more complicated, but I can figure this out. There's a book, um, Marie Forleo wrote a book, and I love the title. It's called Everything is Figureoutable. And, and I mean, it, it, that book is kind of the, the poster child for the self-efficacy movement, which is she, she says, okay, I can figure this out. I, I, I'll look at what I've done in the past. I'll apply it to the problem I have today and we'll solve it. That's what self-efficacy is. Very cool. It's kind of like, as, as you talked about it, Roger, I thought it's the difference between thinking of ourselves as a noun or pronoun or a verb. Like, am I, the verb is I can do it. I have done it. I will figure it out. And to kind of honor that and celebrate that in other people versus just the like, you're awesome kind of a thing um, is an interesting way to think about it. And that that statistic about career criminals, yeah, really stuck with me. So thanks for following up about <laughs> yeah, <sure>. that. <laughs> so I spent a little time on your website drrogerhall.com. We'll put that in the episode notes. There's lots of interesting content there. In fact, I took a couple of quizzes. One was the the worryometer. Is that what you? Yeah, is that the worryometer. Right. Yeah. The worryometer and the freakout quiz. I took both. Uh huh. And I showed up as a I forget the animal, but with the freakout quiz, I was some feisty animal. It's, it's the honey uh, badger. Um, it was, I was a honey badger, yeah. right? Yeah, that puts you back in Wisconsin instead of Minnesota there, Kristen. Just saying. Well, I knew you'd say something about that, uh, Mark. So anyway, there's lots of interesting content on your website. What do you find are some of the pieces there that people find most meaningful and helpful? Yeah, thanks. Um, years ago, and then I, I checked it out more recently, but years ago I looked at, at all the videos I'd posted on YouTube and to see which videos people had watched. And some of them, like two people have watched, which is you know kind of embarrassing because I'm not that famous. Um, in fact, I'm not famous at all. But then there are some of them that have thousands of views. And, I, and I'm trying to figure out what it is. And, and the common theme is fear. If fear is in the mm -hmm. title, people look those up. So fear of physical pain, uh, fear of embarrassment, um, those, those videos have gotten a lot of traction, and, and it made me think that in, in the last few years, there's been incredible uncertainty 
and uncertainty and fear are sisters. And so I I started looking, how can I create more resources for people who are trying to manage their worry, manage their anxiety, uh, and and address uncertainty? And so so I created the worryometer, I created the uh, the freakout quiz, and then I I created an online course called the freakout course um, to to help people address. Um, anxiety and worry and live more productive lives. Hmm. Well, here again, Roger, I want to circle back to, you know, how that fits with executive leaders. Because again, I think a lot of us have this perception that executive leaders are just so focused. So yeah, have strong self-esteem, self-efficacy, and actually would benefit from a little more fear or worry than just this kind of take the hill kind of mentality. Is that fair or is that... Oversimplistic. You know, maybe I I work with a, a subset of leaders, but the leaders who are looking for my help typically um, are mere mortals, and and, and they don't <laughs> fit that sort of cartoon cutout character of the, you know, we can take this hill, and I've never, you know, I, I mean, if you if you think about people like Patton and Winston Churchill, those people didn't appear to have any doubts. Except if you look at Churchill's life, for example, he had these very, he called them black dog days, he, where, where he really suffered from depression and he drank like a fish. So, so he was probably self-medicating. So we, we, we like to believe that the, the, the leaders are these somehow superheroes, but in reality, um, they're, they're, they're mere mortals. They're just like us who are good at certain things and time and circumstance or fate has brought them to a position of power and, and and most of them are just they're just trying to figure it out and so they they need people around them who will tell them the truth today we're talking with Dr. Roger Hall we will be back after this brief word from the Society for Process Consulting continuing now with our conversation with Dr. Roger Hall and the do it yourself brain Roger, this has been an enjoyable conversation, and I am enjoying what you're repeating that I've heard you talk about before. It feels like it's really landing for me and the new content that we're talking about. For this next question, I want to ask you, I need to set it up just a little bit. In the work that Kristen and I are doing with maestro-level leaders, we're usually working with people who have really advanced their field. They have innovated. They've done something disruptive. They've built an organization around it. That organization has gone to new heights. They have invested in the development of other people, some of whom may even be successors to them or may take on the leadership of another organization elsewhere. They are at the point where they're facing yet one more iteration of defining the organization toward its future, pointing it toward its future, and the next round of developing future value so that it can be an enduring organization under someone else's successful leadership. But at that point, they don't have familiar patterns to follow. They've accomplished so much, they're kind of in a community of one, or they've far outpaced their competitors. And it's all new territory from here, stuff that's unexplored, stuff that has to be figure outed, if I go back to that book title. So when you've worked with these kind of exceptional individuals, what do you find yourself working on with them? I I think you've done such a great job describing it. They're in uncharted territory. They don't have models 
and they're surrounded by people, fortunately or unfortunately, almost all of whom are on their payroll. And Mm -hmm. so very often they don't have anyone who will tell them the truth at at all. I mean, I'm convinced that the leader of an organization is lied to, misinformed, and underinformed more than anyone else in the organization. And it's not because the people who work for them are bad. It's that they want to please that leader. And and so I I think my job, and I, I think you you see your job is to tell the truth as best as you see it and to help them figure out okay how do we solve this new problem they need fresh eyes fresh perspective uh and someone to reason out how to manage these uncertainties that they're going through so in in that moment when they are stepping to the side and trying to hand the reins to a successor and to do it in a very effective way what are you finding might be the hardest for them to get their minds around? One of the things I've seen with leaders is a significant subset of them have bought into the idea that now that I've built this thing, I'm going to go travel the world. I'm going to um, buy a vacation home. I'm going to sit on the beach. I'm going to read the Wall Street Journal and I'm going to check my investments and I'm going to be able to have all the fun I never had my entire life. And then six months later, they're bored completely out of their minds. I, I call it all dressed up and no place to go. These are people mm-hmm. who have everything, you know, they, they, they get ready for work, but then they got nothing productive to do. And I don't think they realize, many of them, that happiness is related to solving problems in your domain of expertise. And so when they stop working, they don't have enough they think a golf game, you know, playing playing 18 holes of golf every day will be enough to intellectually satisfy them. And with rare exception, it does not. It's not enough. So what they then do is they go back to the company that they've handed off and they start monkeying with someone else's work and creating chaos because they want to feel useful. They want to feel meaningful because, you know, they, they wake up in the morning and nobody asks them anything anymore. I'll give an example of my father. My father retired um, when he was 63 years old. He took an early retirement from the university. And at his retirement party, my dad's name was George. um, At his retirement party, a a guy came up to him and said, George, this is the worst mistake you've ever made. As soon as you walk out that door, no one's going to listen to anything you ever have to say. All your work will amount to nothing and you shouldn't do it. And I thought, this is a party. Who invited this guy? Um, and so I thought, I, my dad, who, who was a very happy man, I thought, okay, this is not good. And so his deal with the university was he had to be off campus for 30 days. And so on day 31, he got into his car, he drove back to work, got there at 7.30, climbed four flights of stairs up to his office, made a pot of coffee for the office, and went back to work. Didn't collect a paycheck. But he worked every day or nearly every day for the next 10 years until he was about 75. And then he sort of slowed down a little bit. And people say, well, George, why'd you do that? And he says, because I'm doing all the stuff I love and none of the stuff I don't love. And so, so he had a 10 or 15 year run where he got to 
do meaningful, productive work in his domain of expertise without any of the administrative stuff that he didn't enjoy. So what I encourage leaders to do is you've got to figure out, okay, in this next turn, what productive activity am I going to do that's going to be intellectually stimulating enough for me to keep me going for the next 20 or 30 years? Because even though our bodies wear down, most of us, if we can avoid dementia, our our brains are rocking for another 20 or 30 years. Why would we not use that information to benefit the world, even if we don't want to work as hard? This is the moment, what you're talking about, Roger, where the future value of that firm starts to disintegrate and the value that it could bring to employees and customers and stuff starts to diminish because that outgoing leader isn't working as hard on the succession and the transition uh, on themselves or for what remains in the company as they did when they got started. And it requires just as hard of a problem-solving effort as it did to launch a business or to start a new direction. And if they're not figuring themselves out, they're also likely thinking, I shouldn't have to work as hard in the business on my way out. And then you've got someone stepping into their shoes who wants the role but may not fully understand the ecosystem and the enterprise. And you can just feel the fragmentation and the disintegration happening during that sloppy set of actions around the transition. Yeah. And many of your leaders have have skill sets and are good at solving certain kinds of problems. But the problems of succession are are a whole host of of interpersonal problems, long-range planning problems, skill matching problems that they they may be not as well equipped to solve, which is why they need people like you to to help them put the mental effort in so that they can keep their entity growing and thriving beyond their lives. Yeah, that's so true, Roger, and and especially at that third turn of leadership, I mean, that the new opportunity and new challenge to discipline our thinking, especially in this season of planning for the future, letting go of a lot of different things is its own unique challenge. So I um, really appreciate the work you do. And I love the story of your dad. That's just such a compelling example of continued purpose and meaning. He, he was a good example for me and for lots of people around him. Can we shift to talk about the leader's mind? You talk about managing and monitoring our thinking and our our mind and our brain. You talk about what it means to eat for their brain. What what do you mean by that? Yeah, I've kind of become in the last probably six or seven years kind of a nerd about nutrition. In fact, I, I, I just did a continuing ed to become a certified mental health nutritional provider or something like that. I don't don't know what the the designation means, but but looked at what it means to connect nutrition and peak performance. If we think about athletes, athletes spend a lot of time thinking about their nutrition. The the leaders I work with, their thinking is every bit as important as what an athlete is doing. And, and, And what I try to encourage my leaders to to, to learn and remember is that you are eating for your brain. You know, when we were in health class, it's like, you, you know, you eat for healthy bones and healthy muscles. Nah, nah. Your brain occupies between two to 5% of your body mass, but consumes between 20 and 25% of the fuel in your food. This gelatinous thing in our head is a 
huge consumer of the fuel in our food. And so I ask people, is there a brand of gasoline that you never buy for your car? And almost everyone says, oh, yeah, there's that one brand. The, the gas is awful. I never put it in my car. And then I ask them, you know, do you eat Twinkies? Well, yeah. And I think, okay, so you take more care about the fuel you put in your vehicle than you do about choices for the fuel you put into your own body. And so I encourage people to think, okay, you know, the 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 fuel you're putting in, the quality of the fuel predicts the quality of how your brain will function. And, and you know, we've all heard of neurotransmitters, things like serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, GABA, um, you, you know, all, all these hosts of neurotransmitters. And people think, well, I guess we get those from bottles. Well, no, actually, you get them from these small amino acid strings that are in your food and your and your body has these chemical factories that that put those amino acid strings together to make the neurotransmitters and so what you're really doing is you're fueling your brain for higher functioning i could spend an hour on this next topic but but there is a a growing understanding of the relationship between the the mind and the gut and the kind of the short story here is that human beings are symbiotic with millions of bacteria that live in our guts. Much like the, the rhino has this little birds that, that pick off the, 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 the bugs and then these large whales have these little fish that clean them. Well, human beings, we do not function unless we take care of these symbiotic bacteria that live in our gut. And there, there's really good research that that suggests that by changing what's happening in your gut, in terms of the, the, your what's called the gut biota, you can actually change your mood and maybe even your personality. And you're like, what? So it's it's absolutely incredible the research they're doing. So I encourage people to 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 learn about nutrition because how you come across to the people in your office and in your workplace and in your organization is very often a manifestation of the fuel you're putting in your system. And so over the last decade, I've become far more concerned about the fuel that I'm putting in my system because every day, you know, just, just like you, I'm interacting with people and my job is to give my level best every day and to make sure that I'm at my peak performance. And so just like a, an athlete gets good nutrition um, in preparation for, for his or her athletic event, leaders have to get good nutrition in preparation for their mental athletic event. Uh, uh, the, the, the difference between peak performance work with athletes and peak performance work with, with business leaders is very small. There's not a huge difference. I love that you're doing this work, Roger, and you're preaching to the choir here, singing to the choir with Mark and me, because we both have been through our own paradigm shift about uh, nutrition. And um, for me, probably about seven years ago, I just realized my energy was spiking and then plummeting and yeah, just some mood changes. And I was like, okay, this is not working very well. I lose, you know, I'm just not productive. And going through a process of realizing, oh my word, there's a different way of eating that will keep my blood sugar stable, that I won't have these spikes. And, um, 
and for me, and I, and I know for Mark, I, um, you know, some of these things just started breaking through as issues later in our life. Do you find so that seems there's anecdotal evidence for me and among some of my friends that later in life, these things start being having symptoms for some of us that we maybe could navigate up until then. Is that your experience that it hit, can hit people later in life? Absolutely. The blessing and the curse of of youth is that our bodies are working very hard to keep us at, at peak performance. But with age, that ability to overcome our bad habits begins to break down. You know, our, our, our livers and our, our adrenals and, and our thyroid, all, all of these things start to misfire a little bit because we haven't been taking care of them. I mean, it's a lot like preventative maintenance on a car. I mean, you can, you can treat a car badly, not change the oil, and the, and the problem doesn't show up till much later. Um, so absolutely, those things happen later in life. I, I guess I, I want to add one thing, which is because we all have different biochemistry, what works for me may not work for you, and what works for you may not work for me. So I, you know, there are people who are saying you must do it this way, and I think what's probably more important is figuring out, okay, how am I put together and what, do, what does my body need? What are my particular vulnerabilities? I mean, I wish I, wish I was – do you guys remember George Burns, the, the comedian? Mm -hmm. He lived to sure. be 100. He's smoking cigars, eating steaks and jelly donuts. I mean, he was remarkably productive all the way through. Awesome. Good for George Burns. I'm not built like George Burns. I'm not going to live to be 100 if I lived that kind of life. I'd be I'd be dead a lot sooner. And, and so I don't want to say to someone who's built like George Burns, you've got to be like me, but you've got to figure out what's the best path for you and, and understand your own biochemistry, how your body's working, and then find the foods that work best for you. Yeah, thank you. I think especially for third-term leaders, there's just a life stage that brings up different issues and to kind of like you said, um, manage and monitor our thinking. Nutrition can just play such a such a much more important role at that stage. Um, so keep up that important work, Roger. One more question for you before we turn to our turning point questions. So obviously, we all know there are many things changing in the overall workforce. You know, more people are working from home, more virtual and hybrid meetings, the great resignation, for heaven's sakes, supply chain problems cropping up everywhere and the return of inflation. There's the, just a starting point list, but for the leader who wants to retain control of managing and monitoring their thinking, what are you finding it important to emphasize in this day and age? I would say two things. The first is time of quiet reflection. Mm. Uh, we are inundated with so much information and, and I love technology. I mean, I, I, I am not a Luddite. I, I, I love learning. Uh, you know, I, I spend way too much time on Twitter. I mean, I'll, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of all these things I'm preaching against. Uh, but, but I do know that for my mental well-being as a leader, I have to have time each day and each week of quiet reflection, which means doing nothing and um, opening up uh, my, my brain to rest itself. Um, it's doing deep work. There's a great um, book uh, by Cal, Cal Newport called Deep Work, which he, in, in it, he, he talks about how do you get to this deep level of work. Uh, so th the first would be quiet reflection. The second, I think leaders would be wise um, to have 
um, a real strong sense of history. You know, I, I read leadership books all the time, and most are kind of the flavor of the month. I learn more from reading the biographies of leaders and, and understanding the, the, the flow of history to realize that there's nothing new here. I mean, I don't, I don't particularly like some of the changes that are happening, but this isn't new. You, you know, you, you, you read about, you know, I, this, this last, last year I started reading about the French Revolution, which I knew nothing about. And it's like, oh, this has been happening for 200 years. Uh, okay, okay, I, I get it. Um, and, and so I think leaders would be wise to look at historical literature to, to learn more about how people have been solving problems throughout time. And there really isn't anything new under the sun. We're going to shift to our turning point questions now, Roger. We love asking this of folks. And one question we always like to ask is, Okay, so you've got this background in psychology, you've been coaching leaders, you've you had a run with education. But if there had been some other interest for you that you didn't take on, you didn't pursue it, what might that have been? I think as I look back on it now, and I work with a with a ton of financial advisors. I've got clients who are financial planners, and I'd say 80 to 90% of their work is practical psychology and about 10% math. And so I think I, I could have probably been okay as a financial planner that mm. uh, I could I, I could handle the 10 to 20% math because most of what they're doing, the really good ones, is is managing expectations, managing the emotions of their clients so that they don't make bad financial decisions. So I think I, I think I would have been pretty good at that. Well, and it's even easier now because you just put it into the computer and it spits out the information. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't even have to know dad, the math part, right? <laughs> yeah, my dad was a financial planner and I remember how happy he was when he got his first $350 calculator. It was as big <laughs> as his suitcase about, you know, and he could do this, all this stuff now. And when he, his career ended, he was having to go out through all of these firewalls and have all the security just to be able to use an online financial calculator that would protect the information from somebody who might be snooping, you know, it's just such a way that that evolved over time. Uh, Roger, what's a leadership lesson that you wish you would have learned earlier in life? I would say I'm very grateful for my parents, but the the rudimentary lessons they taught me about money were insufficient. Um, I wish I had understood how money worked as uh, a, as a child or a teenager. I didn't learn it until I was in my 30s. And it was an epiphany. You know, I'd already been through graduate school and I was already out making money. And I didn't really understand how money worked until I was in my 30s. And I, 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 so I, I wish I would have learned it earlier. Finance is an important part of any business leader's toolkit. And, and so I wish I had learned that at a younger age. So, uh, Roger, tell us about a current book you're reading and why you chose it, if you would, please. You know, I uh, I I mentioned I, I had just read some stuff on the on the um, French Revolution. In terms of a leadership book, um, I'm reading right now a book called The Failure of Nerve. I love that book. Yeah, a friend of mine ten years ago said you have to buy this book, so I bought it, and it's you know it's one of those books that's been sitting on my bedside table, and it keeps getting stacked up by other books that seem more like you know, exciting in the moment. So I read those and I'm finally getting to it. And I'm, I'm thinking, gosh, you're such an idiot. You should have read this 10 years ago. 
Yeah, that's an awesome book um, and so applicable uh, to today's adaptive realities. Roger, we are so grateful to have had this conversation with you. So appreciate the work you're doing with leaders around their thinking and um, how to eat for their brain. And um, we'll put lots of good links to in the episode notes. Uh, this episode entitled the, D, entitled the DIY Brain. Maestro Level Leader cohorts continue to form, and we are now underway forming one specific to the Christian Leadership Alliance. If you are a nonprofit leader and would like to participate in a Maestro Level Leader cohort, thanks to the Christian Leadership Alliance, this initiative does so at a reduced price, which also includes your membership in CLA. We'd love to talk to you more about it, and you can reach us at maestroleveleaders.com. The Third Turn Podcast is a production of Design Group International. Jennifer Miller is our producer, and our sound engineer is Josh Brinkman. We appreciate your listening, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with others. Until next time, best. This is for our grandchildren's grandchildren.